0: Good afternoon, welcome to our Good Friday service. Let me just uh, make a few intro comments that will help you get the most out of this service. First of all, if you don't have a a worship folder, you'll need it. Uh, All the words to the songs, uh, the prayers that we'll be praying together are in it. Um, I believe there's a few left on those round tables. If you don't have one, go ahead and stand up now and and get a worship folder, it will be helpful. Uh, Second is, this is a service that's gonna be a little bit more uh, sorrowful and somber in tone, and that's with purpose, uh, because this is the, the day that we reflect on that Jesus did die and hang on the cross. Um, the third piece is, many ask, why is this Good Friday? Why do we call it Good Friday? Why isn't it uh, Sad Friday or Bad Friday? Or, because it's a day that it seemed like death won, that evil won, that sin won. And yet in God's great wisdom, actually just the opposite happened. Death came to an end. Sin came to an end. Evil came to an end. That's why it's Good Friday. And that's why we gather and worship today. Father, forgive them for
1: they know not what they are doing. Everything in Christ's life has been leading to this very moment. From his tiny breath in Mary's arms, to the kiss of betrayal by Judas in the garden only hours before, everything that has transpired in the life of our Lord has been driving him to this hour of crucifixion. Arms stretched wide as nails are driven through his hands, feet carefully laid just so in order to receive the nail, humiliated and insulted by his own people hung between two common criminals as though he were one and the same. In the midst of this agonizing and excruciating pain, these words drip from the mouth of our Lord. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. In this prayer to the Father, we are made painfully aware of the depths of the depravity of man. The most heinous act that has ever occurred in mankind's sin-laden history is now taking place. The Son of God, the Holy One, He who knew no sin, God in the flesh, is ravaged at the hands of those He came to save. It is not only an act of incredible evil, it is an act done in ignorance, graphically illustrating that sin has so marred our nature that we are capable of being unaware of the most egregious of sins, And let us not be led astray by thoughts deceiving us into believing that we are not so much like these people. For it is our very sin, our ignorant disobedience, our conscious rebellion for which Jesus now bleeds. But in the midst of this heinous act, in the midst of unparalleled suffering as Jesus pays for the sins of those whom the Father has given him, he pleads. For our forgiveness. As evil, as heinous, as shocking as this act is, as our sin is, so much infinitely greater is the compassion of Christ, the grace of our Lord, the love of the Messiah, who intercedes for his very own in the very hour of death. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast,
2: unmeasured boundless, free. Luke 23 tells us that two other criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him and saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Jesus declared the gospel. On his lips was the story of redemption from beginning to end. He gave the promise of the Garden of Eden to this convicted criminal. Purely on the basis of repentance and faith. Isaiah 53 tells us that the Messiah would be numbered with transgressors at his death. This prophecy was fulfilled. The first criminal railed at or slandered Jesus. His affirmation of Jesus as the Messiah was insincere. It was mockingly laced with bitterness and unbelief. But the second criminal does the opposite. He admits his own sin and worthiness of judgment, but affirms that, that Jesus was innocent. He also declares that Jesus truly was the Messiah, That even though he die on the cross, he would have an eternal kingdom after they both had died on the cross. In so doing, the second criminal affirms his belief that Jesus had power to to raise him from the dead. Jesus answers the prayer of the dying criminal with a promise of eternal life. And this is the same promise to us. As we repent of our sin, as we own the punishment that is due to us, and in that moment look to Jesus as the one who is paying it on our behalf, today Jesus says to us, as we look on faith and put our trust in him, he says, truly I say to you, today
0: you too will be with me in paradise. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. In the greatest moment of agony, in the moments before Jesus was going to breathe his last, we see this profound picture of selfless love, and even more than that, a striking statement of what the church is to be. As, as Jesus is entrusting his mother to this disciple, John, whom he had this deep affection and love for, you have to wonder, where, where were Jesus' brothers? Why didn't he entrust his mother to his brothers, or why didn't his brothers step up and, and take care of their mother? And we don't know exactly. We know that John 7 says that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. And and they may not even have been in Jerusalem because their home was in Capernaum. What we see here is Jesus redefining family in a very powerful way. You've heard the common English phrase that blood runs thicker than water. That's often used to say that family ties run thicker than any other loyalties or any other relationships. Jesus tweaks that here in this moment on the cross. He says blood is thicker than blood, meaning the blood of Jesus Christ is thicker than any family ties or than any other loyalties. Now, Jesus isn't devaluing the nuclear family, but he is redefining family. He's saying that we're to care for one another as we would our own children. That we're to sacrifice for each other as he sacrificed for us. Jesus is building a family. What does this practically mean? It means that if you have a a healthy family, a healthy nuclear family, Christ-centered. What a blessing that is. What Jesus says is open the doors to your family, to those that maybe aren't a part of the family of God or to those that are but don't have a healthy nuclear family. And what it says to those of you that maybe have a broken past and a broken family, an unhealthy family, Jesus says welcome to the church. Welcome to the family of of God, where the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, runs thicker than any family ties.
3: My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and those around the three crosses were startled to hear a very loud cry coming from the middle cross. It was Jesus, and he was shouting in a very loud voice for all to hear, and especially for God to hear. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The greatest why question the world has ever heard. Up to this time, we've always heard Jesus say, Father, Abba Father, Daddy, but now it was God. It was God who had turned his back on his son, the sinless one. This one, Jesus the Christ, who is now drowning in a universal cesspool of sin that was not his own, but that had been heaped upon him by none other than his father. He was now the lamb the lamb that his cousin John had spoken of, who was taking away the sins of those his father had given to him. Jesus was experiencing physically and spiritually separation from the father. Yes, hell. God the father turned his back on his very only begotten son. Why? Why? because God was holy and in his holiness, he could stand no presence of sin. But God was turning his face towards those sinners that he had chosen by his grace from all eternity and given them as a possession to his son for redemption. The great transaction was now taking place at Calvary. The sinless one was voluntarily taking upon him the sin of those that the Father had given to him. And with that, he felt the full fury and the wrath of God that we should have felt. Paul says it this way in Second Corinthians. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. God the Father turned his back on the sinless one and turned his face towards you and me. He took the garbage mound of our sin and he threw it on to his son. He then took the righteousness of Jesus and he wrapped us in it. And with outstretched arms, he welcomed us and adopted us into his family, into his kingdom. What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul?
4: After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Jesus, while hanging on the cross, after having been flogged and beaten and forced to carry his own cross, says, I thirst. The only begotten Son of God, who was in the beginning with the Father, who created all things, who created even hydrogen and oxygen, says, I thirst. And we gave him sour wine instead. In this moment, we feel the reality of Jesus' humanity as well as the weight of his divinity. We hear the words of Jesus and we're reminded of when he told the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus thirsted so that we may never thirst again. Now think all the way back to the Exodus. As the Israelites feared dying of starvation and thirst, in the desert the Lord provided manna from the sky and instructed Moses to strike the rock as water streamed forth. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who was struck with the rod of God's justice that now gives us water in the desert. Jesus thirsted so that we might live and thirst after righteousness. Now hear these words from the Valley of Vision and be encouraged in the gospel. Christ was all anguish that we might be all joy. Cast off that we might be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy that we might be welcomed as a friend. Surrendered to hell's worst that we might attain heaven's best stripped that we might be clothed, wounded that we might be healed, a thirst that we might drink.
5: When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The sixth word of Jesus from the cross has a number of shades of meaning. In the Greek, it's one word, testelestai, which means it is finished, it is complete, it's accomplished or it's fulfilled. One thing it does not mean is I am done for. Testelesta is not a sigh of relief or giving up or retreating. It's a declaration of victory. In spite of the appearances, in spite of the tortured body we see on the cross, Jesus has accomplished everything he came to earth to do. He has accomplished the salvation for his people, for you and for me, and his death will open the door for us for eternal life. This is an actual remarkable thing for Jesus to say, It is finished there on the cross. Because there on the cross, he cannot move. His hands and feet are nailed in a stationary position. He cannot even wipe the sweat from his forehead. And yet he says, I have accomplished everything. I have done it all. The moment when Christ has absolutely no ability to do anything becomes the very moment in which he declares that he has done everything. At that moment in which it seems absolutely, in that moment in which he seems absolutely helpless and defeated, he is actually saying, I've accomplished the most important victory that could ever be accomplished. In ancient Israel, this Greek word, testelisthai, also was a business term that means paid in full. And writing testelisthai at the bottom of a bill would be the same thing as stamping paid with a stamp in our day. Jesus paid the price for our sins. He paid the debt. He paid it in full. It is over. It is finished. Our sins are done away with, and we are free and forgiven. If we hear nothing else today, we need to hear that. Everything we have done wrong, every mistake we have made, everything that has been done to us has been paid for. It is finished. And today on Good Friday, we are reminded that the very justice and love of God Kiss at the cross. And at the cross is the very place of victory and not defeat. So here, in the darkness of Good Friday, and in the darkness of our world, Jesus declares it is finished. The price has been paid. The victory is won. And since we know that Jesus has won the ultimate victory for you and for me, each day we have confidence to walk in his victory. There on the cross, we see both the man of sorrows and our champion, who won the ultimate battle and paid the ultimate price for our redemption for you and for me. And since Jesus said it is finished on his last day, we can start each day of our days resting in his finished work.
6: Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. See, as we, we turn to the seventh and final word of Jesus, we face a growing but quiet question, it's, is Jesus going to rescue himself? And if we're honest, it's a familiar question, it's, it's the question our own hearts ask every day, should we just try to rescue ourselves? And we sit here today already knowing the end of the story, we, we know Jesus stays on the cross, we know that he doesn't choose to rescue himself. But as we come to his final word, we see not why Jesus stayed on the cross, but how he stayed on it. We get a window into the heart of Jesus, and there we find three things. We find first who his trust was in, then we find what he was willing to trust him with, and then we also find how far he was willing to take that trust. See, Jesus came and he died out of immense divine love for us. He Endured what we couldn't endure, and he accomplished what we could never accomplish. But on that day, Jesus, his own hope, his own trust, it wasn't in his own power. It wasn't in even a future circumstance. It was in his Father. And his trust, it wasn't just for his provision. It wasn't just for uh, his rescue. Mm. See, his trust, it extended even to his own spirit. It was into his very being. He trusted him with everything. And see, Jesus' trust of the Father, it didn't, it didn't extend just to when the times were good. It didn't extend just to when things felt like they were under control. It, it went even beyond death. It went to exactly the worst times. It went to exactly when things felt like they were out of control. And so as we look into the heart of Jesus, we see he knew the love of the Father. He had tremendous confidence in the promises of the Father. And it was a joy for him to entrust his rescue to the one who loved him. See, Jesus on the final word was saying, I'm placing myself in your hands. And so today, as we answer the question of our own hearts, should we try to rescue ourselves? We're called to look to the author and perfecter of our faith, to the one who loved us so much that while we were still sinners, he died for us. And in looking to him, we're called, just as he did, to place ourselves in the hands of one who loved us, to abandon our attempts to rescue ourselves and entrust ourselves to Jesus, the one who loves us and who died for us and who's coming again to take us to himself.